Coming up on the Men at the Movies podcast, I talk with Britt about one of his favorite movies of all time, Stranger Than Fiction. Stories like this force us to look at ourselves and ask, what are we doing with our lives? We will find that like Harold, when we face our mortality, we realize what matters most and what makes life meaningful. And when our life is worth living, our death is not a tragedy. Little Did He Know changes everything. So join us as we discover God's truth in this movie. The movies and stories we love are gateways to see ourselves and God in new ways. Every great story borrows its power from a larger story. The story that's written on our hearts and woven into the fabric of our very being. Hello and welcome to the Men at the Movies podcast. My name is Paul McDonald and joining me across the computer screen is Britt Mooney. Booyah! How you doing, man? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? Good. And I'm not going to mess around a lot with intros because we've got a lot of stuff we want to talk about. Because <laughs> For real. Stranger Than Fiction. I mean, we, we joke about Britt has 100 movies in his top 10 but this this movie literally, legitimately is in your top 10. Oh, it legitimately is. Yeah. For sure. I, I told Britt, I was like, the word I would use to describe this movie is it's exquisite. It is so well crafted and well done and well shot and written. And so many show don't tell moments that I, I completely, under, I texted him right after I finished. I was like, dude, I'm wrecked. So if you were looking to get wrecked, go ahead and watch this movie. <laughs> but Britt, why do you love this movie so much? Uh, it's one of my perfect movies that I, I look at like Elf, like um, When Harry Met Sally. There's just some movies that it's like shot for shot, note for note, beat for beat. It's just you just can't act. the acting, the the oh, just every fantastic. different part of it. Yeah. It's just fantastic. So. And that's so hard to do. I have such high um, respect for movies that do that because think about all the different parts that have to come together for that to work. But all that to say is, but also because I am an author, there's so much to this movie that is about the power and reality of story. Why do we love stories so much? And that's one of the reasons why we do this podcast. And 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 I love seeing the story behind whatever's going on and um, you know, the never ending story kind of does some of this where, where they kind of go through what makes a good story and, and, and the, and the character arc and the hair, you know, the hero's journey or whatever it is, they kind of play, and I don't play with it, but they just pretty much expressly state what they're doing, but they do it in a fun, very fantastical way. And this movie does the same thing, except I think in a very relatable way to a lot of people um, in the fact that he is someone who feels alone, like he's going through the motions. He feels isolated. He feels there's a whole bunch of got to's in his life and somewhat safe that he feels it's safe. And yet there's a part of him, as you discover going through the movie, there's always a part of him that wanted something more. And almost couldn't believe it could happen to him. And I think that's what we all long for. And there's just so many of the symbols that I love about the author and the hearing the voice. I love that they never explain why he can hear her voice. Like, they never explain that. Like, there's no cheesy moment of, like, you know, there's <laughs> nuclear waste that goes through town and <laughs> dumps on her on, on her you know, typewriter or something or right. They just never explain it. I just, I love that, that it's like, this just is, it just is. But because you're so engrossed in the characters and their choices and, and, and what they're going through. And I think Will Ferrell can really act. I think with Elf and with this movie, I think you see that he actually can act. And so for all of those reasons, I love the, uh, to me, the goal of, uh, it's all gold, but the, the most golden moments are the discussions with Just Dustin Hoffman, Professor Hibbert, 
where they're talking about story and, and what a story is and why does it matter and, and all of that stuff. And I just, so for all those reasons, it was immediately one of my favorite movies when I saw it, when Beck and I saw it in the theater when it came out. Yeah. And I love you mentioned when Harry met Sally, because that's one of those other ones just exquisitely crafted with the music and the casting and the, the right? writing where every every scene matters, where it's a show, don't tell, which is hard to do when with you've got a movie that actually one of the key elements is a narrator. Because right. narrating is, is one of those. Some people call it um, it's sort of a lazy man's way so that you have somebody to explain it, to explain the story. So it kicks off with hearing a voice. So the main disruption is he hears a voice. And of course, we have been hearing this voice already as the audience because the narrator has been narrating his very empty life. And then he starts hearing the narrator narrating his very empty life. He just, he counts his toothbrush strokes. He does this. It's all the same. It's all exact. There's no variation. Now, she never uses the term empty and meaningless, but the, the, the effect <laughs> and the implication is fairly clear. Right. Show, don't tell. We see his empty, meaningless life. <laughs> right. But that's as an author. So the narrator is an author, as we see later on, but the, the author is setting up the the life before the disruption right this is what every good story will do whether it's a sentence or whether they start you somewhere and then flash back to life before the disruption whatever they do like a, a good story has to say look there's an there's an inciting moment where the normal life is disrupted and there's a conflict that happens that forces the character to do something right um that's just, but in this case, it is a voice, a disembodied voice that no one else seems to hear because he, he's asking people at the bus stop, the lady at the bus stop was like, did you hear that? And, you know, and, and at the same time, his watch is disrupted just slightly. Yeah. And, and which means everything's a little, so when you're in a life that is very safe and regimented being a minute or two off, you're off. But it starts with that that voice. And, and I just love that because although the author in this story isn't necessarily, she's not like a God type figure, but the situation is reminiscent to me of the fact that God will intentionally disrupt your life with his voice. And he'll start pointing things out to you. And sometimes it's just, it's little like it is in the, in the movie. Sometimes it's just a little, a little hint of something. And what we normally do is we dismiss it. What we normally do, and especially nowadays, it's easier to dismiss those questions of, does my life have meaning? I don't want to think about that. And so I can, but what I can do is I can. Because we're afraid the answer is no. <laughs> right? We, we, what we do is we, we distract ourselves and we entertain ourselves with entertainment and our cell phones. And we've got all sorts of ways to, to dismiss the real questions about ourselves. Right. But He's, he's distracted. He's continually distracted by this voice that's trying to, that's talking to him. About how distracted he is. Right. Right. <laughs> and so he's distracted at work and he's an IRS agent. But at the same time, he meets a woman because he has to go and audit this woman, Anna Pascal, who's a bakery lady. And she is the exact opposite of him. Like she doesn't pay all of her taxes and, you know, and it's, it's, and she doesn't follow the she rules, doesn't follow the she's rules. bright and colorful. And she's, she's, she's in contrast to him, but all of this comes to a head. Like, I think he, I think the they call him in to see a counselor. Yeah. Cause uh, like his, his uh, friend um, or somebody, cause his friend was like, he's hearing voices and they said, that's not normal. Maybe you need to take a break. But the only thing, the, the thing before, before we get into the transition that I was thinking about, that idea of empty and meaningless, 
because it would talk about how he would spend time. He spent exactly this much, 45 point something minutes at lunch and 4.3 minutes on a coffee break. And in those times, we see people around him, but he's not engaging no. with anybody. No. And he and it made a point of he goes to bed every night alone. His lonely, empty, meaningless, lack of impact life, right? And and his his apartment is very Spartan, right? His apartment, his bedroom, it's very clean, it's very Spartan. Not like the Greeks village this is sparta no not like that (laughs) but i think this is a great way to start because again i feel like most of us even if we're not uh, you know we don't count the stairs or we don't have that sort of you know thing about us or we do the stuff with numbers like he does i think most of us feel like we just go through the motions and we do what we do and then we live from kind of crisis management to crisis management in some way. And if someone to say, for someone to even try to interrupt our life and go, well, what do you really want to do with your life? I mean, that's such, uh, that's so far beyond our thinking that we're like, I don't have time for that. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do this. But what the, but the voice is pointing this out for a reason, because the author is going to disrupt his life. My, my question is why, do we frame our lives in such uh, rigid lines with consistency, with calculating? Think of it. You're making a decision. You do a pros and cons list, right? Mm-hmm. It's all calculations. It's all measurement. But my question is, why do you think we do that? I mean, to me, the answer is fear. The reason why stories matter, part of the reason why stories matter is that if the stories force us to look at ourselves – Right. I mean, that's what a good story will do, not just distract us, but we'll we'll say, hey, what are you doing? Well, because if you watch Stranger Than Fiction and you don't start asking yourself, what am I doing with my life? Like 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 then the writer hasn't really done his or her job because that's why we love stories, because stories almost they lead us. um, They almost trick us into asking these questions about ourselves. But. Uh, but we sometimes we don't even like that. We just want to see explosions and fighting and superheroes flying around. But like there's there are these deeper questions that they're they're very scary. People die. We do not want to think about death. We don't want to deal with the fact that we're going to die, which is which is the transition, which is the the real main inciting incident is when she tells him, little does he know this was going to lead to his imminent death. But we don't want to think about is my life meaningless? But then the problem with acting by fear is that our ends, our, our lives just end up being meaningless, right? Does that make sense? Like we're, right. we're acting out of fear because we don't want to really deal with that we might have a problem or we may not be whatever, or we don't want to think we're good enough or whatever, the, all this sort of issues. We might fail. We might get hurt. We, we might die. Uh, I don't. I don't like this job, but I, I'm not good enough for another job. Or, or well, I'm, I'm going to quit this job and do nothing, you know, or yeah. take a risk on something that's you know that's going to fail, and I'm going to look like a big fool or whatever sort of stuff. So it's, to me, it's fear, and and it it almost doesn't make sense that the voice was going to talk to a guy who's living in fear and go, oh, by the way, you're going to die. I mean, that that just sounds like it's going to push you over the edge, right? Right. But it's the truth. It forces him to start asking bigger questions. Who is this voice? It, she's talking to me like I'm a narrator. Well, you're, you're, you're schizophrenic. No, I'm not schizophrenic. Like the psychiatrist can't really help him because the psychiatrist doesn't know what to do with this. And as much as I am not against counseling, right? I'm not, my, I have a daughter in counseling. I'm not against it. But at the same time, they can't substitute a voice from another world telling you something. It's just like there's no substitute for that. There's another voice from another world saying, you're going to die. What are you going to do with your life? To a psychiatrist who has to explain it medically, that's just schizophrenia. And he's like, no, it's not schizophrenia. And then I think she suggests that he go to a some sort of literature guy, right? Yeah, because I love that that idea. Cause what does she say? What he's like, well, what would you do? He's, she's like, I would get on, I would take my medicines as prescribed. 
<laughs> think of how many times God speaks to us and our and it's scary, whether it's about our death or you know, in some sense, he's like, I know this voice knows me. Yes. She knows who I am. But our response is to medicate away the disruption, medicate away the voice, because it is safe. It's scary to face our own death. It's scary to to try to engage in something and might, as we see, as he does with Anna, consistently screw things up, you know, and, and have to apologize and to be uncertain. And how do we medicate, you know, that medication might be Good. surrounding yourself in Good. work. It might be keeping people away. It could be booze. It could be porn. It could just be watching movies and <laughs> or TV yeah. or... I mean, you can lose yourself in anything, but that's the that's a pretty typical response when God tries to disrupt them. Like, you know, what about Abraham? What do you think his family said? He's like, God's telling me I got to leave this city. He's like, no, you're a pretty good businessman. Stay here. Like, why would you just wander? Where are you going? I don't know. He said he'd show me along the way. That sounds crazy, dude. Yeah, like how many 80-year-old guys live in as a wealthy man in the most civilized city in the world at the time their version of new york city i mean it, it, it <laughs> there's there weren't a lot of cities back then but like <laughs> this was the beginning of that sort of like dawning of civilization and he was a big part of that and he hears a voice that says go just leave and I mean, there's risk in that. There's not a lot of security in that. And yet what he promises him is God's promises. I got something more for you. There's something more for you out here. And, and here he is with his wife and they don't have a kid and better, blah, 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 blah. but I, I've got a, you're going to have descendants. You're going to have something more for you out here. That's the, that's the Bible, right? I mean, like people are called away from normal or quote unquote normal into some different story that doesn't seem to make sense to people. It's not going to make sense to a psychiatrist or a counselor, right? Unless they're Christian, I guess, and they can kind of dialogue with you about that. But what? But what? It, but when when it comes down to death, now it's urgent. It's imminent. Well, how much time do I? <laughs> how much time do I have? And how am I going to die? And like, and now he is face to face with his own mortality. And then he goes into and he meets with uh, Doctor Hibbert, right? Dustin Hoffman's character. Yeah, Mister Crick, I can't help you. Why? Well, I'm not an expert in uh, crazy. I'm an expert in literature theory, and I got to tell you, thus far. There doesn't seem to be a single literary thing about him. I don't doubt to hear a voice, but it couldn't possibly be a narrator because, frankly, there doesn't seem to be much to narrate. And beside that, this semester I'm teaching five courses. I'm mentoring two doctoral candidates, and I'm the faculty lifeguard at the pool. Oh, I, I just thought you could possibly... Perhaps you should keep a journal. Write down what she said or something. That's, that's all I can suggest. I can barely remember it all. I, I just remember little did he know that this simple, seemingly innocuous act would lead to his imminent death. What? Little did he know that this... Did you this... say little did he know? Yes. I've written papers on little did he know. I used to teach a class based on little did he know. I mean, I once gave an entire seminar on little did he know. Son of a bitch, Harold. Little did he know it means there's something he doesn't know. That means there's something you don't know. Do you know that? Uh, I want you to come back Friday. Okay. No, imminent. You could be dead by Friday. Come back tomorrow at 9.45. Ten seconds ago, you said you wouldn't help me. It's been a very revealing ten seconds, Harold. So, like, what in his life... What what could have possibly ever given him the idea to go to a literature professor, right? Like this is propelling him forward and and causing him to make choices. And I and I wrote a couple things down. I said, 
What would you do if you believed that you had limited time, that you were dying? What would you do if, if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, it's a fluke thing and we can't fix it, but you have a year to live? Like, what would you do? Would you still just keep doing the same things you're doing now? It's possible, I guess. Or would you say, man, I'm quitting my job. <laughs> I'm going to spend all the money I got. I'm going to go you know, skydiving, Rocky Mountain. I'm going to like, like, <laughs> like, what would you do differently, right? What dreams and relationships would now be a priority? What kind of relationships would you be like, man, I haven't called that person or, you know, because we, we've all got those people that we keep saying I should call them, but then you don't. You've, we've also got those people who are like, no, I don't need to spend time with them. Because no, right. <laughs> you, you would cultivate the people that mattered most, right? You would start there. It would make very clear, it would focus you on the things that matter most in your life. And and you would start thinking about, I don't want to regret not doing this. I don't want to regret not doing this or that or going here or, or seeing this. And the truth is that we are all dying. Like the Bible literally says, right. you, you're not promised tomorrow. And, and, and we should think this might be the last day. So what, God, what should I do today? How can I make today matter? And even if it's something little, because um, not everything Harold Crick ends up doing is huge and boisterous, like, but... But that's the sort of mentality that, ironically, you would think, oh, I'm going to die. That means nothing matters. But ironically, it can actually help your life matter. When I was in nursing school, we I did a clinical rotation with a hospice. And during our orientation to hospice, they had us take these, say, 20, 25 index cards. And they said, okay, on these, on five, write your five closest people, your friends, write your five closest family members, write your five favorite things you like to do, five places you want to go, you know, that sort of thing. And then they started a story and they said, okay, this person, you know, she finds out she has cancer. She sits down with the doctor and here's their diagnosis. Throw away two of your cards. And then he goes on. She starts chemo, throw away another card. And it goes on and on as she approaches the end of the your the end of her life, the the woman in the story, and you're left with like three or four cards that you started with twenty or twenty five, mm. and it's like, you know, you're bed bound. Throw away another card, and there's people like wrecked, crying, like leaving the room because they can't handle it because you know you're you're deciding between your your spouse or your kid who's gonna be there with you as as you know you're you're dying right. Mm. But that idea of what, how do we, how do we do that? What, how do we prioritize? How do we, like you said, that the song that you mentioned before of how do you live like you were dying? Because we're not guaranteed tomorrow in, in spite of all the effort and focus and, you know, say whatever you want about mass and vaccines and spacing and fear. I loved what you said about the fear. The fear is why we construct our lives because- we're afraid of dying. We don't know what happens next. To live with the your death in front of you, that idea of memento mori, the Latin phrase for, for basically remember you're going to die, it should change how you are going to live. Absolutely. And, and what it does for Harold in the movie is because he's talking with this guy and this guy and, and this professor Hibbert is trying to help him out. He starts, they start to have conversations about what kind of story he's in. Okay, so we know you have a narrator, and we have to figure out what kind, what type of story are you in? And, uh, and of course, you know, at the same time, there's the other storylines with the main one with, with him and Anna, Pascal the baker, uh, and all that that's going on. So then, this professor starts to ask him a lot of questions about, about the kind of story that he's in. And again, uh, even though it's kind of a funny scene, uh, what we're, we're going to get to is it's a very important 
question, what kind of story am I in? I'm sorry, but what do these questions have to do with anything? Nothing. The only way to find out what story you're in is to determine what stories you're not in. Odd as it may seem, I've just ruled out half of Greek literature, seven fairy tales, ten Chinese fables, and determined conclusively that you are not King Hamlet, Scout Finch, Miss Marple, Frankenstein's monster, or a golem. Hmm? Aren't you relieved to know you're not a golem? Yes, I am relieved to know that I'm not a golem. Good. Do you have magical powers? <laughs> I am relieved I am not a golem. He's like, is there any part of your body that's not your own? Have you gotten anything <laughs> un- unexpected in the mail? Anything? Like a big wooden horse. <laughs> Um, no, nothing. But what? I think that's a that's an important question of what story do we think we're in? What framework, what sort of fairy tale? And as we, we've talked about with the, the art of the narrator, because you can't always trust the narrator. Or you don't know if you can. Right, because you're hearing their perspective. In this case, you know, Emma Thompson's voice. But that idea of what story are we in? Can we trust the narrator? Can we trust the author? Like I just read a series of books over the last week or so. And I texted you this morning, Brett. I was like, these were terrible. (laughs) It's like, I had read stuff before that was pretty good. These were terrible. I felt like I was reading a video game. Like seriously, they kept going back to the wise woman. I'm like, this is stupid. This is a video game construct. This is terrible writing. And then I went to Patrick Roth's book, uh, The Name of the Wind, which is so good. So fantastic. I haven't read it in a few years. And I just, it just draws you in. So that other guy, and I'm not going to name names because I don't want (laughs) to, I can't trust that author, but I can trust Patrick Rothfuss. And I was like, oh, I really like him. I really like this story. And so when we're talking about our lives, what kind of story are we living in? Can we trust the author? We're going to get there. Yeah. Because... See, now no. I'm jumping ahead. Usually it's No, 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 no. I know. No, it's, it's good, though, because the first step of trusting the author later comes here when he says she's been right about everything else. Mm. And by the way, so with little did he know, right? He's like, which means you don't know something. Did you know that? You know. Well, and it's interesting because little did he know is the key that unlocked Jules. It did. Like any other phrase, it he needs another literary professor. But he's like, oh, wait, little did you, li- they said little did he know? That's my jam. That's, <laughs> I, I, I've studied this. <laughs> but, and, and here's why it's worth studying, or, or it is to Professor Hibbert, right? Because it, there's mystery there. There's, there's something unknown and what do I not know? Wh- what do you mean? What do I not know? And that's that's humbling, but it's also exciting. Little did he know means there's another force behind what's happening. There's some mystery. There's an omniscient. There's mystery, but there's also omniscience. There's destiny. There's there's purpose. There's somebody. Something's happening here, and so that this gets him involved. All of that is so. Amazing to me because we're not going to get a full-on answer when when the when the voice starts talking to us and we come face to face with our own mortality and I don't know how much time I've got left but I know I have to do something different. I remember when we came back from Korea, man. It was a hard transition for me because I thought, like an idiot, that I could just get back into my old life. That's not right? how it works. Uh, that's not <laughs> how it worked. And I remember, uh, you know, I you know, I worked real hard and I got a job again teaching middle school, thinking this is what this is what made me happy. This is where God had me before we went to Korea and I come back and I'll just get back to this and and yada 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 and and it just wasn't working. And I I watched some sort of documentary on something where somebody was like following their dream or something. And I'm like, and I'm just talking with Becca and I'm weeping and I'm like, what is happening to me? Like, I don't, I I don't, this isn't where I'm supposed to be, but I don't know where I'm supposed to be. 
I don't know what this is going to look like. I just, you got to start exploring. And, and, I, and I put in there that we have to explore and find the author. That is the biggest question that we have to answer for our own self. No one can answer this for you. The, the Professor Hibbert is a mentor and helps him answer it, but he can't answer the question right. because ultimately Harold Crick had to go find the author. He had to go find this woman and he had to go with the clues and he had to make the changes and he had to do the self-exploration and he had to do all. And the mentor can help you find that that voice and find the, the author, but he, the, a mentor can't do it for you. And so one of my favorite parts uh, as we're getting towards the author is the uh, the tragedy versus comedy thing. But go ahead. Well, I, just, I, I really liked what you said there about the uh, framing on the little did he know. I wanted to sit on that for another second. A year ago, I had a friend of mine who was leaving a church in a very painful way. His future was uncertain because he didn't have a job. And he was torn up. He was distraught. He couldn't sleep. He was restless. And this dude is like one of the nicest guys you've ever met. And he's just tense and fearful, uncertain. Flip that to, you know, later that same year, you know, six, nine months later, he's at a church, a church that welcomes him lovingly, like warm embrace from the entire congregation in in a in a town where he's close to his family he's got people around him who have known him since middle school but i think back to that 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 time when we were together it was like little did he know what was coming little did he know what god had planned what what amazing stuff god had planned little did he know and how often i get stuck because I don't know. I get stuck in the fear, the uncertainty. I get stuck in the little, do I know? What do I not know? What do I not know? What do I need to do? And we try to, I try to get out of it. I try to figure my way out. Again, it goes, I, I think I, I keep going back to this idea of trusting the author. Do I trust the author? Do I trust the narrator? Do I trust my mentor? Right. And that's where, where Harold, and you know, he's little did he know he's facing imminent death. Like, whoa, well, that's, that's unsettling. But the the combination there is important. The combination of mystery, I'm going to face my own death, I'm in a story. Or, or you don't even know you're in a story. Like if you just like he he didn't need a voice to tell him he was going to die one day. Right. He didn't need that, right? And and at one point one of the conversations Professor Hibbert said that too, like later on in the movie. He's like you will die one day. Uh, but with an author, without a voice that that even it, it, even if you don't know the story is telling you you're in one, that means there's something next. That 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 means there are answers somewhere. Because without the voice, it's there's no reason to even search, and that's why the voice has to come with. We're always it. in that little did he know moment. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. <laughs> Little did he know bad things were going to happen. Little did he know good things were going to happen. And that's, I think that clip, I guess we're going to play next. As, as they get to the end of that test, Dr. Hibbert says, we just have one question left. Is this a comedy or is this a tragedy? The last thing to determine conclusively is whether you're in a comedy or a tragedy. To quote Edel Calvino, the ultimate meaning to which all stories refer has two faces continuity of life, the inevitability of death. Tragedy, you die, comedy, you get hitched. He's talking about that tension. Are you in a comedy? Are you in a tragedy? What kind of, like, uh, there, there's two stories. One is going to end in life and one is going to end in death. What we see in the movie is that because he's going to die, he thinks he's in a tragedy, mm -hmm. Right. And Hibbert even says at one point when they figure out who the, you know, Karen Eiffel or whatever her name is, when they figure out the, 
who the author is, he was like, dude, you're screwed, right? <laughs> you're going to die. Like she kills. That's what, that's, that's her, what that's her does. jam. That's yeah. her thing. That's what she does. She kills off the main character and in a tragic way. Right. And, you know, Emma Thompson is a master actress on all on her own, but just because he's going to die, I wrote this down just because he's going to die. Doesn't make it a tragedy mm. because the ending she writes gives his life meaning and so so for a little while in the movie he's trying to figure out is he in a comedy or a tragedy and in that scene with the professor uh, he 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 learns about anna the baker he's like you know i think she you know well that has promise explore that you know <laughs> maybe that'll give you some hints as to what kind of story you're in and man i, I just I, I you know we could talk a lot about that i don't want to get too sidetracked but it's just what are the relationships in your life? Because that can give you a clue. Like just the relationships in your life and how people are responding to you, that can give you a clue. And I love, uh, I love the, I don't know if it was before or after this where he says, just try nothing. Just do nothing. Oh, yeah. This you know? is after. And then, yeah, I think, I think it was before this where he tells them to just do nothing and see if you're an active or passive character sort of thing. Like, are you, are you driving the story or is the story driving you? And he's just sitting there doing nothing. And in his very clean, very safe <laughs> apartment where he has put himself in this bubble out of life, you know, in the beginning of the movie, like a wrecking ball <laughs> comes through. <laughs> and so, but what, what does that force him to do? Now it forces him to go live with his friend. And he start and he starts asking him deep questions. What would you do? If you knew you were going to die, what would you do? What, 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 what's one thing? Do I have a superpower? No, you don't. You're just, am I rich? No, you're just you, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, you're invisible. You're never too old for space camp. You're never too old for space camp. Uh, and his friend tells him, I, would, I always wanted to go to space camp, but I never did. And now that, now that Harold knows he's going to die, he's like, now he's going to take chances. He's going to learn how to play the guitar. He's going to, uh, that's when he. Well, hang on, hang on. You're, now, you're, now you are, now you're jumping. Now I'm jumping. Now you're jumping. Um, I do have the do nothing clip because I want to go back a little bit Okay, to talk about, you know, he left that, like you mentioned, he went to say, okay, well, there's somebody that showed up since the story started, go see how she's involved. She, the baker, Anna, she can tell me, give me clues if this is a comedy or a tragedy. And it begins to look like it's a tragedy because things are going downhill. He screws up every time. <laughs> it's like, I think I'm in a tragedy. <laughs> One of my favorite lines. <laughs> and it's interesting because that's what happens to us. We think we have to drive the story. We think the story's up to us. And so Jules tells him, he's like, okay, then there's this scene. He's like, hey, I think I'm in a tragedy. I'm not sure. I haven't heard the narrator much. So he recommends that he, he do nothing. He sits in his... And that he go home. But the reason why I wanted to dig into how we many times do nothing when we don't want to be a part of the story anymore. Mm. Well, I think about Harold. If you want to stay alive, you try something else. That something being nothing? Nothing, exactly. Nothing? Let me explain this again. Some plots are moved forward by external events and crises. Others are moved forward by the characters themselves. If I go through that door, the plot continues. The story of me through the door. If I stay here, the plot can't move forward. The story ends. Also, if I stay here, I'm late. Don't do anything tomorrow. Nothing? Nothing. Stay home. Don't answer the phone. Don't open the door. Don't brush your teeth. What about work? Call him tonight. Tell him you're not coming. Don't go to work? Don't do anything that may move the plot forward. Instead, let's see if the plot finds you. And I love that line. Let's see if the plot finds you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it gets too hard. And we're like, nope, I don't like where this story is going. I want to check out. He had 18 little boxes of tick marks that he it's a tragedy and one tick mark that it's a comedy. He's like, ah, it's not going well. And when it's not going well, when our story doesn't feel like it's going well, because little do we know, 
We can only see what's in front of us. We want to check out. We want to do nothing. We want to go back to the safety of our meaningless, empty, disengaged life, which he does. But the other piece, the wrecking ball comes in and destroys his apartment. The story is not up to us. We are not the author. To me, incredibly freeing. It's not up to Mm. me if I produce a podcast once a week. Or it's not up to me if I didn't do this or I didn't do this. It's not, it wasn't up to Joseph if he said the right thing to his brothers or if he was sold to the Midianites, slave to Potiphar in jail. All that stuff didn't matter. The story found him. And that's the same thing for us is we feel like we're running out of time. You know, time being a very big theme of this movie. We feel like we're running out of time and we're chasing our story when sometimes we do not check out, disengage, do nothing, but maybe stop chasing the story and just let the story come to us. I mean, he was told to do this, but on the extreme, he completely disengages from everything. In other words, sometimes we get we get exhausted by the search, by the self-exploration. <laughs> we get tired of it. We're like... I'm not finding any answers here. It looks like it's a tragedy. I'm not even going to work. Like my say, I like, so now like what an awful position to be in. I know my safe life isn't safe. Mm. I know my safe life is crap and it was empty and I know I'm going to die, but I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. So maybe I'll just do nothing. Right. And that's what people do sometimes. And, and, and I wrote down like, man, sometimes God is going to move you anyway. It's like sometimes God is going to like, especially if you have committed to be a follower of Christ, what God will do is he will not let you sit. Like you may not like how he moves you at that point. Like you may not like it anyway, but you definitely won't like how he moves you when you're trying to sit on your butt and not follow your purpose. Like you're definitely, and you're not even going to do anything. Like when you know better. A wrecking ball will come in. (laughs) A wrecking ball. Oh, a narrator wasn't enough. We got to send in the bulldozer. (laughs) He, He doesn't even have the option now to go back to the comfortable life. Like the the author smashed his comfortable life. This is the point of no return in a lot of stories, right? Where you, there's no going back from here. Like there's only forward. So there's a couple of things he starts to do. He he plays the guitar. He always wanted to be more musical. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, you're still jumping. Oh, okay. <laughs> he doesn't play the guitar until after the next conversation. Remember. But he's like, "Hey, a wrecking ball came and destroyed my house. Is that a coincidence?" He's like finding a. An insurance man, that's a coincidence. This is plot. This is something else entirely. Right. When he goes back to see Dr. Hibbert and tells him, this happened. You know, I can't, I'm not even safe in my own house. And what his response is, this isn't a coincidence. This isn't even plot. This is you don't control your own fate. And so, but his advice to him is to go enjoy his life And this conversation really was the turning point uh, for Harold's transformation. You were right. This narrator might very well kill you. So I humbly suggested you just forget all this and go live your life. Live my life? I am living my life. I'd like to continue to live my life. I know, of course. I mean, all of it. However long you have left. You know, I mean, Howard, you could you could use it to have an adventure, uh, you know, invent something, or just finish reading Crime and Punishment. Hell, Harold, you could just eat nothing but pancakes if you want. What's wrong with you? Hey, I don't want to eat nothing but pancakes. I want to live. I mean, who in their right mind and a choice between pancakes and living chooses pancakes? Harold, if you'd pause to think, I believe you'd realize that that answer is inextricably contingent upon the type of life being led and, of course, the quality of the pancakes. You don't understand what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. But you have to understand that this isn't a philosophy or a literary theory or a story to me. It's my life. Absolutely. So just go make it the one you've always wanted. 
the, that last maybe 20 seconds. Yeah. That depends on the type of life you're living and the quality of the pancakes. But Harold's response is awesome. It's like, this isn't philosophy. This isn't some trial. This is my life. Yes. And that's what Jesus says. It's like, yeah, we think we know what we're doing. We think we're basing this life on, on theology or philosophy or all this stuff. But it's one thing to know it. Psychologically, mentally, whatever. It's enough. one thing to know in your head. It is entirely different to walk it, to be in the dirt with it. You know, like the, and the, the phrase I've used a lot is, is how my brother said, before I had kids, I, w- I was a great parent. I knew exactly what to do. Right. Then you have kids and you're freaking clueless. <laughs> you don't know how you're going to react. You don't know how, what faith looks like until you are in the hospital. You don't know what hope looks like until you've suffered loss. You don't know what joy looks like or contentment unless you've suffered and you actually have to put it in practice. That's that's the parable, right? Whoever listens to my words and puts them into practice is the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. It's He's got a firm foundation that is immovable and unshakable when the waves and the storms of this world come against you. The foolish one is the one who's like, yeah, that sounded good, but this is hard. This is tough. This is my life we're talking about. Doing it this way is easier, whatever. Right, because it's much easier not to build a foundation in the short term. <laughs> it's, much, it's much easier to dig in sand than to try right. to build on a rock. It's, it, you know. I'd rather build sandcastles than build a house. It's easier. And in that parable, of course, both men mm-hmm. heard the voice and both men encountered a storm. But only one of them survived the storm, right? Whatever they built. And that's where we're going. Like, God knows there's a storm coming, just like the author tells Harold, you're going to die. This is, ha- this is going to happen. There is a finite thing that is going to happen. The question is not, are you going to die? But the question is, are you going to live past it? Are you going to survive death? <laughs> That's the actual question. Every man dies. Not every man truly lives, right? Not every man lives. It's the quality of the life, the type of life we're living. Quality of life and the, and the pancakes. I mean, quality sometimes, you know. Uh, Those be some good and, pancakes. And I, and I love the line at the end of that where he says, make, your, make, make it the life you've always wanted. What did you, what have you wanted to make it? And you just never did. And that's where he starts to ask his friend the question. And, and that's where he starts to play the guitar and he gets Anna flowers, which is a great little oh, scene. Such a great scene. Cause it's, it's a box full of little bags of flour. Cause she's a baker and she's like, what, what even is this? She's like, it's, I brought you flowers. And that you, you talk about a scene that says so much. Like, oh yeah, the the cliched, hey, I'm bringing you flowers to apologize. No, because he knew, he pursued her heart because he knew how she loved baking and how that, she said, if I was going to make the world a better place, I'd do it with cookies. And so he brought her flowers mm-hmm. and he said, I want you. Right. I am done hiding. I'm going to go pick up a guitar I'm going to engage with my friend because I have no other choice and I'm going to express my, my love and my desire for you. And what we see as he does that, he becomes more and more alive as you, what type of life is being lived. And we find that probably in those four weeks, uh, Harold has lived more life than he had in the previous decades. With every awkward strum, Harold Crick became stronger in who he was, what he wanted, and why he was alive. Harold no longer ate alone. He no longer counted brush strokes. Harold? He no longer wore neckties. And therefore no longer worried about the time it took to put them on. 
he no longer counted his steps to the bus stop. Instead, Harold did that which had terrified him before. That which had eluded him Monday through Friday for so many years. That which the unrelenting lyrics of numerous punk rock songs told him to do. Harold Crick lived his life. Just as a good movie and a good writing, as we've already established, you know, you, you notice his physical change throughout the movie. His clothes change, right? Yeah. Like, his clothes change, you know? And, and that's good writing. Like, as, as the character transforms, they have to physically, you have to show somehow physically that they are transforming. A lot of times that's clothes or, or whatever, my haircut or something happens, right? Or they get their hand cut off by Darth Vader. Something happens. <laughs> You know, to show that they're different. But in this one, his clothes change. And and by the way, Emma Thompson's character, she, her her look changes too. But when she's at the end of the movie, she's a lot more put together than she is at the beginning, where she's you know frazzled and smoking up a storm. And but but another one of those visual cues that we see is like you said, in the beginning, he was sleeping alone in a very clean, white, gray apartment, right? Yeah. And now when he's living his life, he's in bed with a woman and they're in the cloud, the, 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 the covers are tussled and he's, you know, he's not in put- there colors. There's colors and warmth. The, even the, I think even the headboard was, is an arc. It yeah, wasn't a square. Right. I mean, it's, it's the, the contrast is there. Right. And so now he's living his life. And now that he's living his life and he realizes when he gets a taste of it, he's like, I have to meet this author. I don't want to lose this. I don't want to lose this. Now I have finally found what I've always wanted, you know. I don't want to die. I want to keep living. I don't want to die. I want to keep living. So so then he very resourcefully finds the author. Mm. Hang on, hang on. In the beginning of the movie, he's living a life that doesn't matter. That if he died, it didn't matter. Like, I think if he died, it didn't matter right. to him. But now that he, when he sort of discovered his imminent death, he began living the life. In the beginning of the movie, he didn't care about living the life he lived. It was just yeah. there. And now he's like, this is something I don't want to give up. Which is, it again, I think it goes back to what Jesus says. If any man would, whoever would, seek to save his life will lose it. But those who, if you give it up, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find life. And that's where we see Harold in that tension uh, as he races off to try to find uh, Kay. You know, the scripture you just quoted is that's the decision he has to end up making. Because now that he's finding life, by the way, just because it's good writing, like he's not only improving his life, you know, he's improving his friend's life and he's improving Anna's life. Like there are other consequences, positive rewards, right. For finding life, like uh, other things become more healthy too. And so when he finds the author and he kind of comes face to face and it's, you know, it's very cool, but, uh, but just to kind of summarize what happens is she has finished at least on a pad, she's finished the end of the story where she kills him. And so she's, she tells Kay, let him read it. Let him read the end of the story. He can't do it. And first he gives it to Professor Hibbert and, and the mentor reads it. It's important. The mentor reads it and says, I'm sorry, Harold, Harold but you have to do this. You're going to die one day anyway, but the way she has written this, you it has meaning. It has purpose. So he reads it himself and he ends up telling the author because, again, just like God gives us the end while we're in the middle of the story. Now, we may not know the details like Harold knows the details, but he's given what we find out is he's given a chance because he dies saving a little boy. 
which we have seen little hints of throughout the movie, which again is great writing because we have a little bit of an emotional attachment to this boy, right? It's not just some nameless random boy out of nowhere. The ending she wrote, and she was going to give up on it. She was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And he said, no, you have to. Like, and it, Because he knows that if she doesn't write it, the boy's going to get hit and die. So she has to write it and he has to choose it. And that this is what God asks of us. Like you're going to give things up anyway. You're going to lose your life. Are you going to lose your life for something that means something? And of course, in the movie, Harold thinks he's going to die, but he actually chooses to sacrifice not only his own physical life, but the amazing love that he has now developed with, with Anna. And, and he says goodbye with, you know, doing, uh, giving the, giving the guy space camp and like fixing her taxes in a way that means she's not, I think my way of <laughs> changing the world is you don't go to jail. And, and, and so he, he call he, he makes phone calls about for people that he's been putting off and like all of this stuff. He, he accepts in a very calm way that this is what has to happen, but it's not even for a great book. It's for the good of somebody else. In that moment, before the transformation, would Harold have been the type of man who would have noticed a boy? The bike, you know, jumps the curb, go, falls in front of a bus that's coming up. Would he have been there to pay attention? Would he have been alert enough? You know, you think of today, if people are at a bus stop, they're looking at their phones. Would he have been alert enough? Would he have been engaged in the world enough prior to the intervention, the transformation? Like that whole idea, like he had to become the guy who would step into front of a bus for this kid. And that idea like the life that he lived actually made his death worth dying. Going back to that, uh, the quote that, Professor Hibbert used the continuity of life and the certainty of death. What would you give your life for? What would you live for? But then what sort of death do you desire? You could die in a hospital. You could die in a car wreck. You could die any one of a number of ways. But if you could die giving your life so that boy could live, that might make it worth it. He now knew that life was worth living, and that made his sacrifice mean yeah. something. See, because now he can give his life because, because he knows that boy's life is worth living. Now he knows that life has value and purpose. And because he knows that, he knows the value of another person's life, then he knows that it's worth his own, just like Jesus. Jesus... It, you know, it wasn't because Jesus didn't think we were worth anything, right? Jesus gave his life because he knew the value of what he was giving his life for. And the father knew the value of what he was giving the, his life for. It is, it's it, not to put us down. He didn't die for us. Yes, we were sinners, but it was because he he elevated our value to such a degree that he was willing to give his life for it. But then what happens is when we do that, we take away the power of death. We, take, we actually take away the power of death that way. When we give our life willingly out of an understanding of value, under an understanding that, that, that we should sacrifice for the good of others and give up what we have, right? It goes to the, the scripture you quoted, right? If you give up your life for my sake, it's not just suicide. It's not like I'm just going to give up my life for anything for my sake and the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the, for the trust that the author has a plan that's beautiful and has purpose and has meaning. And when you know that, what you get is life after death. You get life after death. And and that takes away the sting of death, which we you know read in whatever First Corinthians fifteen. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where's your victory? Now people right. still die, but 
the taking away of the of the sting is not that people don't die anymore, but that even though they die, they live again, just like Jesus did. And and I love that part. Knowing there's an author, we see the end. From, we know there's an end. We know there's a purpose. We know there's an arc. We know there's possibilities. We know we, we don't know everything. But of course, when we when we actually get to meet the author, we start to understand just what our sacrifice means, what our life means. And we and we can trust the author that he's he's out in, in Christianity, right? That he's out for something good. He's gonna turn it all out for good as 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 much as it might hurt now, and it's a mystery now, and all of those things, uh, we can trust. And uh and then in the end you have the you know, the great conversation where and where basically that's what Karen Eiffel says. She says she says, how can you kill a man like that? Like the whole point of the book was that he didn't know he was going to die, but this one does. <laughs> and he chooses it anyway. How do you kill that guy? And I think that's what God says. How do you kill someone who's willing to live their life and give it for others? You don't. They live again. <laughs> no, why did you change the book? Lots of reasons. I realized I just couldn't do it. Because he's real? Because it's a book about a man who doesn't know he's about to die and then dies. But if the man does know he's going to die and dies anyway, dies dies willingly, knowing he could stop it, then, I mean, isn't that the type of man you want to keep alive? If the little boy died because Harold's not paying attention and the movie ends, that's a tragedy. Right? That's a real tragedy. If the movie ends because Harold had jumped in front of the bus, saved the boy, and died in doing it, that's not a tragedy. Exactly. Just because you die doesn't make it a tragedy. It only makes it a tragedy if it doesn't mean anything. If there's no meaning in it, if there's no, if there's no truth in it, that's what makes it a tragedy. Not just that you die, but that at the end that your, your death doesn't even mean anything. And that is a possibility. Like it is, even though we have immense value to God, everybody has equal value to God. Whether or not our lives and our deaths mean anything is up to us, whether we are willing to follow that voice and go meet the author and start participating in that story. That's the only way. We know the value of our lives because of the price God paid for it, right? We are worth the life of Jesus because that's what he gave up for it. That whole idea, the tragedy versus comedy thing. I tend to not like tragedies. My wife and I went to a, a Broadway show several weeks ago called Hades Town. It's based on the Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. Eurydice. And basically... Eurydice and Orpheus fall in love, as they do. <laughs> uh, but Orpheus is writing this song that's going to change the world. And while he's writing, Eurydice gets hungry. Writing music doesn't always pay the bills. So she takes a, she takes a job. She promises you know, her soul to Hades, basically, so that she won't be hungry. Their, their biggest battles against poverty. It's actually, there's some really good themes in that as well. Orpheus, when he finishes the song, he goes down to get her. He goes down to bring her back out. And he goes and he makes a bargain with Hades. He's like, you can, and Hades says, you can leave with her, but you can't walk beside her. She walks beside, behind you. And if you look back, she will be banished to hell forever. Because he said, it's easy to walk out side by side holding hands. But when you're walking alone, uncertain if she's following you, uncertain if she's there, that's when the doubts come and that's when you're going to look back. Can you resist the doubts? And because this is a tragedy, you know how this is going to end. <laughs> they get to the actually exit, you know, the lights, the sun, and then he looks back and he looks back and she gets pulled back into hell. And it ends very strangely because then it sort of almost starts all over. And, and uh, Hermes is, is sort of the narrator of this show. 
And he said, this is what happens. You know, there, it's going to happen all over again and it cycles. And to me, it's super depressing. Tragedy like that is because what it says is transformation is not possible. Mm. And you have a death at the end. But in this case, the death is, it's a tragedy. Conversely, a, a show like Hamilton. Hamilton dies at the end of the show. Spoiler yep. alert. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's the, you know, the, that's Aaron Burr becomes a, a basically a footnote in your history book is the line, I think. But he dies transformed. And so you walk out feeling whole. You, it's one of my favorite shows ever, if mm -hmm. not the my favorite full stop. Because as you, you said, the dying doesn't make it a tragedy. But what did you live for and what did you die for? And when we look at our lives, we look at what, how has God been narrating? How has God been authoring us? God writes our stories, right? Jesus is the author of our faith. He's the one who wrote us into existence. I mean, all through the Bible, our plan, God planned for us, God planned for you here today before the world was created. You were part of the original blueprint. When, the, when, when he spoke, let there be light, you were already existing in his mind. And will we submit to the author? Will we submit to the narrator? Will we let his words guide us to a life worth living and a death worth dying? Mm. Or will we fight it trying to uh, control and medicate or chase a life we think we want when everything we've ever wanted, he's offered us. So this has been Paul McDonald and Britt Mooney talking about Stranger Than Fiction. You guys should get it. Uh, if we could, we'd send it out to all the listeners, but uh, <laughs> we're not made of money. So you're out of luck. So uh, we hope that you guys enjoyed it. Uh, we hope that you join us next time here on the Minute the Movies podcast. Something inside has been awakened. I can no longer be who I was before. But if I am no longer who I was, who am I to be? Yeah.